Well, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with space. Mostly that means I, I love Star Wars, but I was also obsessed with actual space. Uh, and uh, I, I loved learning about NASA. I even watched the entire docu-series, The Right Stuff, when I was younger. And if you don't know, this is like four hours long. I mean, it's a ton of stuff. Uh, they're actually remaking it, but it's all about the history of NASA, and in particular, the history of the first NASA pilots who went into space. And uh, I, I'm no expert in these early stories of space exploration, but I felt like I knew a decent amount about that topic. But then a new movie came out a few years ago. It's called Hidden Figures, if you remember. And I did not know this story. It's about uh, three African-American women, mathematicians and engineers, who confronted the racial and gender barriers of their field to become part of a larger story of America's race to space. In fact, one of these women uh, was the chief, one of the chief engineers of John Glenn's first orbit around the planet. Sometimes, even stories we know really, really well, they have hidden figures, people we haven't paid attention to. Stories, in fact, like the one we just read in Exodus chapter 2. If you are at all familiar with the Bible, you know that Exodus chapter 2 is a pivotal part of the story of the Bible. Uh, this is uh, that baby uh, adopted there at the end of the story. You caught his name. It's Moses. Moses will become God's prophet and leader to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt, to lead them for decades and decades, uh, to, and to bring them right up into the promised land. We're in a series, though, on forgotten family, looking for the hidden figures of these Bible stories that we often miss. And personally, I've read this Exodus story, and I've, I've, I've thought about it so many times, and there's so many wonderful little details in here. But the one I often miss is the hidden figure. The one I often miss is actually the hero of this story, who is Miriam, Moses' sister. So I want us to look at her story together as a part of our series. And so uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 2. Miriam's story, that's the second book of your Bible, by the way, uh, Miriam's story is going to span several different chapters in the, in, in the Bible. But we're going to start here in Exodus chapter 2. And the first thing we're going to see that's a part of her character is her bravery. She is a courageous protector. Let me catch you up just a little bit on the book of Exodus. So Exodus chapter 1 opens with a new pharaoh in Egypt. So if you remember the end of Genesis, uh, Joseph, who's been exalted by the pharaoh, he's the second in command in all of the empire, uh, calls his family, the chosen family, down uh, into Egypt uh, to escape famine. And they receive blessing from Pharaoh. Pharaoh welcomes them there. And they multiply and multiply for generations. Exodus begins, there's a new Pharaoh now. There's a new king who does not know Joseph. And he now is becoming concerned about these Israelites who have moved down into Egypt because they have grown and grown and grown and, go and God's blessed them. And Pharaoh is afraid they're going to take over our country. So first, he enslaves them to oppress them. And when that doesn't work because they continue to grow, he commands the unthinkable, if you remember this part. He creates a national policy that any male son born to a Hebrew wife is to be killed 
and thrown into the Nile. It's, it's unthinkable evil. That's all in Exodus chapter 1. That's how this story starts. It's very dark. Exodus chapter 2 begins with a son born to a Hebrew woman. So he's very much in danger. Her name is Jacobed. We learn her name later. You don't see it here in this story. She hides her son for three months in their home. But she realizes this is not a sustainable plan to protect my son. Because the bigger he gets, the more the danger grows, both for him and the entire family. So she weaves a basket, watertight, that's verse 3, and she puts her son in it and puts him in a specific spot along the Nile River. We don't really know what her plan is yet, but mom says to big sister Miriam, she says, you stay and watch. Watch over your brother. Now, if you'll notice, Miriam is not named in this story, but Moses only ever has one sister. So this is Miriam. Jacobed, her mother, probably had hard work to do. Remember, she's a slave. She's got somebody paying attention to whether she shows up to work or not. So she can't stay here. It would be perilous for all of them. She has to leave, but she says, Miriam, you stay. Keep in mind with me, Miriam here is probably under 10 years old. She's young. It was, uh, and if there was a plan, this is it. This is a specific spot along the Nile River where Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe. And sure enough, she and her entourage show up, and that's verse 5. She sees the basket in the river. She calls to one of her servants and says, bring the basket to me. And now she opens the basket, and she knows what's inside, verse 6. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now pause there for a second. Because if, you know, if you've read this story in the Bible or you've seen the Disney movie, you know where this is going. But hang on a second. Okay, imagine you are eight years old. You're a slave. You are someone else's property. You have seen what happens to children that the empire does not like. But you have a little brother. And somehow, by God's providence, he has an audience with a princess. It's a, it's, it's a strange meeting. But it's a meeting. The princess is looking at your brother, and, right, and she can do anything to him, anything she wants. She can turn him in, she can put him back, anything. And in that moment, in pure faith and courage, Miriam speaks up. She puts her life on the line. She runs up to Pharaoh's daughter with a brilliant plan. Verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. So you see, God uses this act of courage to save not only Moses, but God's people. Miriam is the hero of this story. And here's what I want us to notice first about Miriam. Miriam is one of many young people whom God uses to rescue and redeem. Her youth is not a problem for him. You do not have to be grown up for God to use you. David, remember, was a youth when he rescued Israel from Goliath. Samuel was a young boy when he was called to be a prophet. King Josiah was still a teenager when he led Israel in a revival, a spiritual revival that his ancestors could not do over and over and over again. We could keep going. And God uses children now in his mission in incredible ways. 
In fact, I, I just, I don't know if, for those of you who are familiar with our ministry partner, Elam, they, they do evangelism and church planting in the Persian-speaking world. They sent a, a mailer the, this quarter, and the lead story is about Nima. Nima is six years old. He's a boy. His family recently became Christians in 2020, and uh, he was given a Bible from Elam. And if you remember, actually, as a church, we, we partnered with them to help make sure people get Bibles in the Persian-speaking world. So he's in Iran. Um, he got this Bible and uh, started reading it. I think it was illustrated. It was, it was designed for children. Uh, but one day, his grandfather came over, 82 years old, lifelong Muslim. And Nima came up to his grandfather with his Bible and said, I want to tell you about Jesus. And he told of Jesus' rescue and how Jesus could rescue him too. The simple story of Jesus. His grandfather joined a Bible study in that home and I just saw in that mailer he has become a Christian himself. Nima, six years old, a little Miriam in the making. Courage and faith. So young people in the room, God is not waiting for you to grow up before you are relevant to his mission in the world. That is not true. He's ready to use you now. And parents and grandparents and aunties and uncles in the room, think about how you can invest in the young people in your life, both in your family but also in your church family, knowing that God wants to use them, not just once they graduate or get a job or go to college, but right now, right now. Miriam's courage reminds us there is no age limit to what God can do in and through you. Your age, whatever it is, is not a barrier to him. You are never too young, you're never too old. But that's not all Miriam's story shows us. She's, she's a courageous protector at a very young age. Shows incredible faith and obedience. She's also a gifted leader. We don't actually see Miriam after this story in Exodus 2 for several more chapters. The narrative focus shifts to Moses, who, if you remember his story, he murders an Egyptian who's oppressing one of the Hebrew people. He's now a wanted man. He has to flee. He leaves Egypt, spends years and years as a shepherd in the wilderness. And from there, God meets him in the burning bush. That's one of the most famous stories about Moses and tells him, you go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh and rescue my people. But remember, Miriam is here in Egypt the whole time serving God's people right where they are. Moses was being prepared for leadership in the wilderness, in obscurity, to be sure. But what I've not often thought about is that God is also preparing Miriam for leadership right there in Goshen, which was the slave district in Egypt. And you know this because by the time we see Miriam again, which is in Exodus 15, and you can turn there now, God's people have already crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh is utterly destroyed. God's people are saved. And in Exodus 15, verse 20, you see this. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, who's Moses' brother as well, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So notice this, by the time we see Miriam again, she's already a leader. Moses, if you follow his story closely, 
he comes back and he kind of has to prove himself to his people again. There are moments along the way where they kind of go, I don't know about you, Moses. Are you sure God talked to you? You sure this is the plan? So they're skeptical of him, but they don't seem skeptical of Miriam. I think she's been leading her people for a while. And she's an unusual leader in a few ways. So first, we never hear a husband's name associated with her, which is very unusual in in the Hebrew text. Even next week, we're going to talk about Deborah. Deborah's husband is named in her story, even though he plays no part in the narrative at all. So it, it would be unique for Miriam to be married and not have her husband named. I think she's single, which is very countercultural, especially at this time. In fact, um, and she's also called a prophet. In fact, she's the first person in the entire biblical narrative to be called a prophet. Moses, to be sure, is, is called, and, and right? He, he functions as a prophet, but she's the first one given that title. It's a difficult word to define, uh, but prophets in general are people with the authority to be God's mouthpiece to his people. So she's a, a leader. She's a preacher. She's a teacher. She's a gifted leader that God is using to lead his people. And she's also apparently a worship leader. Okay? She leads the, the other women in worship as a response to God's rescue in the Red Sea. And her song that's recorded there in Exodus is the first song in a long line of women whose worship and poetry is recorded in the Bible at pivotal hinge moments along the way. So you've got Miriam's song here, you've got Deborah's in the book of Judges, you've got Hannah's, and then you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. And here's the real plot twist if you haven't picked up on this yet. She's a woman. It is very difficult to overstate how countercultural her gender was in a place of leadership at this time. Second lesson for Miriam, women matter deeply to God and his mission of redemption. It is clear from beginning to end that God values men and women equally, that both are integral to his image, his divine image in the world, that both are necessary in God's mission of redemption In fact, that equality, that that equality of gender has always been one of the most controversial aspects of the Christian faith as it has confronted different cultures throughout the world. The Bible's teaching on women in particular, for example, completely upended the Greco-Roman view of gender in the New Testament era. It wasn't just that It was a new idea to to that culture that men and women were of equal value and dignity. It was downright counterintuitive. Women were simply viewed as inferior to men in every conceivable way. In fact, one of the earliest examples that we have of early Greek philosophers who were arguing against Christianity uh, in the ancient world, one of the reasons was predominantly about who became Christian, especially women. Yeah, this is from Minucius Felix. He's a Christian apologist from the third century. He records a common critique that he received in debate. He put it this way, Christianity attracted the dregs of the populace and credulous women with the inability of their natural sex. That was the environment that Christian teaching on gender confronted. This is the environment. Today, you see the same pattern. 
there is a reason that globally speaking, the average Christian is predominantly female. In places like India and Iran and China and Africa and Latin America, where Christianity is growing and growing, women often lead the charge of gospel proclamation because they find in the Bible a dignity and worth as women that their culture has rarely, if ever, afforded them. Women matter deeply to God and His mission in the world, not simply as wives and mothers, as important as that is, but as women who inherently image God in a unique and irreplaceable way. And again, you return to the story of Exodus. It's amazing what you see when you start paying attention to this. It's noteworthy that no less than five women act faithfully or do what is right despite the evil of Pharaoh to wipe out God's chosen people. I didn't talk about this, but in chapter one, there are two midwives who refuse to obey Pharaoh's command of infanticide. Then you've got Miriam and her mother. Then you've got uh, Pharaoh's daughter. All of them defy Pharaoh. Simply put, without these women, God's rescue plan in Exodus does not happen. It is their faithfulness and their courage that leads the way. All of this should be abundantly clear to the reader of the Bible. And yet I confess that in Christian practice, we have not always lived up to and valued women the way that we should. To be sure, there is disagreement among believers about the role of women and men in the church, but on the value and dignity and gifting of women to serve in and through their local church, we should stand out. That is our legacy. That is the story that we participate in. So women in the room, if you come from a spiritual background, that was abusive, that marginalized you, that ignored you, that dismissed you, that put you aside, I am so sorry. And I want you to hear me say, that is not at all God's design for you, and it is not his design for his family. God loves you, he has a plan for you, and he wants you to serve in your church. That is his design. And if you don't believe me that God uses male and female, to move his mission forward. There are so many other texts I could go to. I want to point you to this. In the book, in the letter of Romans, Paul writes like his, his magnum opus letter to the Roman churches, and at the very end, he lists co-laborers that he thanks and honors. He says, like, I couldn't have done it without these people. He lists no fewer than nine women at the end of Romans church planters, co-laborers who played a critical role in the early gospel movement throughout the Roman Empire. And if you look even just at our own evangelical heritage, and I don't mean that word politically as it's often used, I mean it theologically, the theological movement from which our church comes, the Evangelical Free Church of America. If you look at that history, women are all over the story. Did you know that the first Christian, the, the first uh, college in the nation to offer the same degrees to both genders was an evangelical college in 1860, Wheaton College. Harvard, to put it in perspective, Harvard University did not do this until 1943, and that was mostly because of the financial pressure that the war put on them. And from that school, Wheaton and others like it, women started churches here in the States and all over the globe. Many scholars believe that well over half the missionaries of the last century were women, 
and many of them were single. And here's the deal. I can't think of a better way to summarize this point than this. So this is from an article I read in Reform Journal, uh, cataloging, uh, in part, the story of Mary Slessor, who was a missionary in the Scottish Presbyterian Church. And she taught and led churches uh, in what is today known as Nigeria at the, at the turn of the century. And one of the, one of the common critiques she would get is, well, hey, we're not sure the, that the Africans are, you know, going to be responsive to a woman in leadership. She said this in response, in measuring the woman's power, you have evidently forgotten to take into account the woman's God. It's pretty good. Let me finish with this. Our church, okay, Christ Community Church, our church, our family would not function without the incredible gifting and leadership of women. From worship leaders to teachers to Bible study and small group facilitators to pastors and shepherds, we have incredible women serving our church while they're serving our city through their vocation, right? Let alone that part. And I I seriously thought about naming some of these women so we could honor them together, but I thought I didn't want to punish them for leading. I didn't want to make them uncomfortable. So here's what I want us to do. Let us notice these leaders. Let us pay attention. And let us give thanks as we interact with them and thank God for them because each one is an incredible gift to our family, an irreplaceable gift. Okay, last point on Miriam. She was a courageous protector. She was a gifted leader but she was also a fellow struggler with us. Okay, her final story, and you don't need to turn there. You've worked hard enough already. Her final story is in Numbers 12 with her two brothers, so Moses and Aaron. And uh, Aaron and Miriam are angry with Moses in this story. Who's mar- he's married a Cushite woman. Uh, that's verse 1 of Numbers 12. Now, Cush, if you're not familiar, was the ancient term for an area south of Egypt in Africa. So this woman is likely black. And Aaron and Miriam, they start criticizing Moses for this marriage. And we don't totally know why at first, but we, I think it's pretty clear by the end of the story. But in verse 2, this is kind of what they're going around saying. They're saying, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Right? They're undermining Moses, saying, hey, we're, we're prophets too. God uses us too. Remember, these three are like the executive team, okay? Moses is the leader, but Miriam and Aaron are his, like his right and his left hand, and that's reinforced when God calls all three to the tent of meeting, which is the, the tabernacle that Tom explained uh, in more detail last week. He call, he call, God calls the executive meeting. He says, I want to talk to the three of you, and then he looks at Miriam and Aaron and says, you cannot do what you're doing. You cannot undermine Moses. What are, you, what are you doing? And God punishes Miriam in particular, I think, because she was the ringleader. I'm reading into this a little bit, but when you, whenever you read about Aaron, he's basically following someone else. So if you remember when Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, all the people are like, he's never coming back. Make us a God. And Aaron goes, okay. So that's a part of his story. I think Miriam is the ringleader here. So Miriam is punished with temporary leprosy that turns her skin, the Hebrew text is adamant, white as snow. The Hebrew, we don't need to know that. We know what leprosy is, but the Hebrew says what color she turns. I think the Hebrew is saying that the skin color is a part of her punishment as it was directly related to the sin of prejudice against Moses' African wife 
and her ambition to replace her brother as the leader of God's people, both. Now, Miriam, for her, for her part and to her credit, she submits to God's cleansing, her repentance, and is restored to God's people. That's verse 15. We don't hear from her again until her death in Numbers 20, which is recorded, which if you know in the Bible, if your death is recorded, that's a sign of dignity and honor and respect and noteworthiness. However, to be fair, right here in this story, she joins a long list of God's leaders who at some point along the way make a big, stupid mistake. Moses will do that in Numbers 20. Abraham and Sarah did it. Isaac and Rebecca did it. Jacob, David, Peter, on and on and on, right down to you and me. She was a fellow struggler in need of rescue. This is our final lesson. Male, female, young or old, we all need rescue. Miriam needed rescue for all of her leadership ability, for everything she'd done for God and for his people. She was still a sinner in need of rescue. She still had pride. She still had prejudice, just like you and me. But get this, notice this. This is the most important part of this point. God never abandoned her. No, she wasn't perfect. Yes, she made mistakes. But God still used her and still loved her and still honored her. In fact, years and years later, God called the prophet Micah. There's a whole book of the Old Testament named after him that he wrote. He spoke through Micah to the people of Jerusalem generations after the Exodus story. In chapter 6 of Micah, God reminds his people through the prophet about his rescue from Egypt in Exodus. He says, remember, this is verse 4, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. There's her name. Think about that. She's right there with Moses, the writer of Torah. She's right there with Aaron, the first high priest. There's Miriam, leader of God's people. God used her, and he honored her, and he loves her. And not just because she was a good leader or a prophet, or even because she was a screw-up, but because he saw her as he sees you and me, as a part of a larger exodus story, a larger rescue plan that even Miriam didn't know about, couldn't have perceived. Thousands of years after her death, another young woman was called by God into one of the most important human vocations anyone's ever been called to, to carry God's son in her womb, to raise him in righteousness, to love him sacrificially, even as he is slowly rejected by God's people, the very people he came to save. Of course, I'm talking now of Mary, the mother of Jesus, whose name in Hebrew is, of course, Miriam. It is to Miriam's son, Jesus, that we look to as our only hope this morning. He is the one, the only one, who can rescue his people from pride, who can free us from the sin that distorts our relationships and prejudices against one another. The only one who can leave us from, lead us from slavery in sin to freedom and the promised land of forgiveness in a new heaven and a new earth. And when we reach that place, when we can worship God with God's people from across time and across space, I have a feeling that we will see Miriam there leading the assembly of people in worship in a song of praise 
to the king of creation, to the redeemer of all, to her rescuer, and to ours too. Let's pray to him now. Father, as we look at the story you're telling from beginning to end, and we see the parts you call male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, these people that you call it to be a part of your story, who are on the one hand flawed, yes, imperfect, but also beautiful pictures of faith and obedience. We pause and give you thanks for each one of them. We stand on their shoulders. And may we, your people, by the power of your Spirit, may we come into your story of redemption, bringing all that we have, all that we are, and all that we do, submitting them to you and your plan to be more and more like the people you've called in the past, to be more and more like Jesus, yes, and more and more even like Miriam in her obedience. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.